What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the JV team, and we know it's been a while, but we had a little COVID scare, and uh, we're glad Jackson's back, um, and we're ready to talk some more sports. No, for sure. Thank you, Carter. It's good to be back. It's good to be back on the JV team. The reason why we haven't been able to do very many podcasts lately is because I've been coaching all July in Round Rock for a summer league team, the Round Rock Harrymen, and Carter's been working and so we've in Houston and so we haven't been able to get together but we're happy to be back and let's get right into it Carter so let's go right into the NBA so yesterday we had the first play-in game which by the way I thought that was a cool concept I I think we should have that during the regular season but we have the Portland Trailblazers versus the Lakers how do you think that'll stack up Ooh, I think it's going to be a good matchup. Damian Lillard's been on fire late recently, and the Portland Trailblazers have been doing really well in the bubble. But we'll go into the Lakers first. The Lakers, while they were in the bubble, they went two and one, two, three, four. So they went two and four in the bubble, and they've been kind of struggling. They haven't been able to find their game, really. And, I mean, all their losses have been kind of blowouts, really. Lost to Houston real bad. They lost to Sacramento real bad. Indiana, they lost to. And so it'll be interesting to see how they group together and face Portland, who's been on fire while they've gone. Portland's done really well in the bubble. They've gone one, two, three, four, five, six, and two in the bubble. And their only two losses were to L.A. Clippers by five and to Boston Celtics by four. And to win that play-in game is a big deal for the Portland Trailblazers against Memphis. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, they played a good young team in the Memphis Grizzlies. I mean, John Morant, I think he's surprised everyone. I think we knew he was a great player coming out of – uh, Murray State, or where'd he go? Yeah, Murray State. Um, and I think that, you know, he's a great player. I think that'll be a good team down the road. And good for him for going to the playoffs his first year. I mean, he took that team to the first, first play-in game ever. Which, how do you feel about the play-in games? It's kind of like the wild-card game a little bit. I didn't really watch the game with Portland and Memphis, but, you know, it's kind of like a play-in game. You may see that happen next year. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting time with COVID-19 and coronavirus. And so, we'll see how it goes, but... Yeah, I like it. Your thoughts, Carter? I really like it. Um, I thought the energy was really good. I, I really, I, I really thought it. It really reminded me of a wild card game in baseball. You know, like the Rays and the A's last year, and that was a great game. I, I, I really liked the idea, and I think the NBA should use it in the regular season. I mean, how good would that be in a you know after COVID times? You have a packed arena, one game, do or die, gets you into the playoffs. That'd be an amazing atmosphere. No, for sure. It could be. Do you decide, hey, are you going to put it at the home arena or are you going to put it in a neutral site and have both fan bases be there? Or what? How does it go? I, I think best record gets home, home or home court advantage. No, you could. So let's move on now. We got our next matchup is the Rockets and the Thunder. And this is an interesting one because Russell Westbrook is injured. For He may miss one game, miss two games. You know, we don't know yet. So how do you think that'll, that'll, that'll go? And we also have Chris Paul. Um, playing against the team that you know traded him, and same with Russ. I mean, he was a Thunder his whole career. So how do you think that'll that'll go? I think he'll go. Let's see, six games. I think the Thunder can win two with Stephen Adams and Chris Paul and a couple others that they've had. But I still like the Rockets in that series. Um, James Harden will hopefully does well and go from there. But they've got to get Russell Westbrook healthy. If they don't get Russell Westbrook healthy, um, Bill. I mean, we've had people tell me from different. People I've talked to with basketball say that they worry about the Rockets because if they don't have everybody healthy, then how are they going to do against better teams? But I think they'll win probably 4-2 over the Thunder. I agree. I agree. So this is an, a very interesting topic. You know, the Spurs, your, your love mm-hmm. Spurs, they, they missed the playoffs for the first time in how many years? 23 years. 
And there's a lot of rumors swimming around that Pop might leave or he may go to Brooklyn. What are you What are you thinking about that? No, he might. I mean, the Spurs have a lot of young talent coming up. They made a good run in the bubble, did did all right. But if he leaves, you got Becky Hammond that could be there or a couple other assistant coaches that could come up and that have been mentored by Pop. You see some te- some coaches go off to be head coaches with different organizations once they leave. Uh, Greg Popovich's tutelage. So we'll see. I don't know. Um, if I'm the Spurs, you kind of debrief, think, go into the offseason, you say, hey, let's build around the young guys that we have, the Lonnie Walkers, uh, Durante Murrays of the world. And you go into the offseason and you say, what kind of pieces can surround those young guys to make them even better and more and prosper to becoming better players? So who do you? who's your favorite to win it all this year? To win it all this year, I like the Clippers. I, I kind of, I really don't like Milwaukee. Watching yeah. them play in the bubble, I kind of feel like they've been not very good in the bubble. But with the East, I like Miami a lot. Um, Jimmy Butler's been really good, um, and a couple others. Well, they also added Andre Iguodala. That's a good veteran to have. You know, he's with the Warriors, and that that could that could prove something. Um, I think that they could make a good run. Um, I, I think it could be the Lakers and the and the Heat for sure, or the Clippers. I, I my pick out of the West is definitely the Clippers, um, and that that usually ch- that'll probably change if Russ comes back. I think the Rockets could could make a run for it. I don't know, but um, let's go ahead and move into college football. So we got a lot of college football news. We had a lot of COVID news come out, and it looks like the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are not playing. What are your thoughts on these? I totally understand the the coming of not playing for the Big Ten and Pac-12 reasons for COVID purposes. Um, You know, it's going to be very interesting to see how the ACC, Big 12, and uh, SEC do it if they do decide to play a season. But really, I feel like the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are either going to look really smart or the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 are going to look really smart because of the Big Ten and Pac-12 when they don't play and if football does well – for D1 purposes, and they don't have very many COVID uh, positive tests, um, then you're then they're going to lose a lot of money. But if you do have a bunch of COVID positive tests, then you're going to have, you know, the ACC, SEC, Big Twelve looking like they're you know full. And so there's a lot of people that could possibly lose their jobs um, either way with this COVID situation. But Carter, I'll throw it on to you. What do you think? Well, you know, you also have players like Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields. Justin Fields today started a petition, and I think it already has about 8,000 signatures. I mean, they want to play. You know, these guys – a guy like Justin Fields is a great example. He transferred to get a better opportunity, and now he's not playing. Um, Kennedy – or no, Trey Sermon, I think, transferred to Ohio State too from Oklahoma, and now he won't play. So, uh, you know, it's just – it's a weird time. I don't think a lot of these – a lot of nobody knows really what to do. You know, nobody knows what's the right decision or what's the wrong decision. Personally, I think we should play. I think college football, you know, brings happiness to people. I love college football. I know you do too, um, and I think it would be even without fans. I think it would still provide uh, everything that everybody wanted. But you know, like I said, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, all these players are starting to speak up against their conferences. Uh, Trevor Lawrence tweeted a couple days ago that I don't know about y'all, but we want to play. And that, that's a guy that could – same with Justin Fields. They could both opt out right now and be top five picks. So, I mean, what do you think about that? No, they could be, and they have a lot of pool, right, for college football. Uh, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, um, 
guys that have been there and done that. I know Joe Burrow's gone and Tua Tagovailoa's gone, but if they were in college football still and they were saying, hey, we want to play, then that bows a lot of weight. Um, you know, not very many people get to determine the fate of uh, a conference, but when you have star players saying that they want to play, it looks it, that makes it that much tougher on the commissioners and the presidents of the universities um, to decide rather, to shut it down. And so there's not a good option either way of how to do it. And this whole COVID stuff sucks. But, you know, you just got to figure out how can you do things that are safety purposes, but still you got to be able to make money. And at the end of the day, if there's no college football, and we can kind of get into this too, if there's no college football, then how are other sports and colleges going to play when you have, you know, you got Title IX issues, you've got um, other schools that just don't make a lot of money with baseball, football, basketball. Besides those three, they don't make a whole lot of money. And how about like lower level for D3 schools for testing That's or D2? They don't have the money to do the testing. And so there's a lot of different issues that go into deciding whether or not to play. I mean, I think you're going to see some conferences fold. I think you're going to see some schools. You know, Stanford already – Pretty sure they canceled 11 sports. They got rid of 11 varsity sports, and that's a big deal. People aren't realizing, you know, football brings in probably, I, you would know more than me, but I would probably guess 80% of the income for the school. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I saw an article that said Bama, the city of Tuscaloosa, will lose, will lose like around a billion dollars if Bama doesn't play this year. That's a big deal. No, for sure it's a big deal. And when you have people that, you know, want to play and then you have coaches too that, you know, if they come back like in the spring, what are you going to do when you have teams that have 50 to 100 guys come, you know, on a team like a baseball team or whatever when you don't need that very many and you have – because all guys want to come back and they want to play their senior year or whatever. It's just very interesting to see what's going to happen and it makes it that much tougher on the situation. It really does. So let's get into the transfer news. We last show, I think Marcel Brooks had just announced that he was transferring from LSU, correct? Yeah. So he is going to TCU, and TCU also got JD Spielman. Now JD Spielman may not be known in the in like the southern states, but he's one of the leading receivers in Nebraska. Jackson, can you read us some of the stats on him? Yeah. So for three years, he's played thirty three games played. He's had. 21 he's had 128 yards he's had long this is just rushing stats sorry long of 40 yards and he's averaged 6.1 yards a game and in career receiving stats he's had 33 games 170 receptions 2546 yards 15 touchdowns and 77 was the long for that in reception of 5.2 a game and so we found that from the university of nebraska where he's transferring from nebraska which we got in nebraska a lot of nebraska news to talk about but he's transferring from Nebraska to TCU. That, those are pretty good numbers. And I think it's interesting because the Vi- his dad is the Vikings GM, and they took Gladney this year in the first round. So they would know, his family would know Patterson and all of these, you know, all the coaches at TCU because they had to do all the research and everything. Could be a good addition for the Frogs. Let's go ahead and look at Marcel Brooks' stats. Now, Marcel Brooks was one of the top players in the nation coming out of high school. He was a five-star out of Flower Mound. Went to LSU, started as a true freshman. Well, he didn't start. He played as a true freshman on that, on that wonderful team. I mean, that team's considered one of the best college football teams ever. 
Um, can you read us some of the stats on him, Jackson? Yeah, I'll just read a couple games off because it's on LSU, but it has it based on games. And so when it was at Ole Miss, he had three tackles. He had a sack against Florida. He's, I mean, he's just really good. He did really well against Alabama. And so when you're getting a guy that can come in, and I know his, his family's been close in the Fort Worth area, so it makes sense to transfer to TCU. But, you know, you're getting a guy that can play multiple positions, like you said before, Carter. He can really play anywhere on the field on defense. He can, you could put him on, on the line. You could put him at safety, corner, linebacker. I think he's going to play linebacker at TCU or safety. Uh, but a guy like that, man, and a Gary Patterson defense, I mean, we've always talked about, you know, TCU getting a five-star. Well, they got one, and that, that could be a sight to see in that defense. What, do you, what are your thoughts? No, it could be. I mean, TCU's kind of been trending not in the best direction lately. Um, they've been, you know, 6-6, six and 4-8, six, and eight, stuff like that. They, the last great season they had was probably 2015 when everybody – uh, 2018 maybe, yeah, uh, 2017. 2017. But, I mean, like, where they were really good um, with, you know, Trevon Boykin and Josh Doxson and Aaron Green. But, you know, it would be good to see them do better and just for the Big 12 purposes. Yeah, and you also add a guy like Zach Evans. I mean, that there's potential there. You got a lot of youngsters on that team. Um, kind of keeping it on recruiting, UT got the number one quarterback in the nation. Can you uh, give us the rundown on him? Yeah, so his, his name's Quinn Ewers. He's from uh, South Lake Carroll. And his stats, um, he had a 72.4 completion pass his first year. He started throwing for over 4,000 yards and 45 touchdowns with only three picks. And so Texas, they've always gotten really good five-star recruits, but they're getting a really good quarterback. And if you go from Sam Ellinger – to this guy, you're looking like you're going in the right direction. And with all the new things going on at UT with the stadium and bringing in more fans and, you know, all of that matters for recruits. And so that's a big deal for the University of Texas. And UT is trending in the right direction, I believe. And I look forward to the UT-Oklahoma game this year if it does happen. Yeah, Spencer Rattler, and that that should be interesting. Uh, you know, they're, we'll see. You know, everyone – is waiting for Texas to come back, and it would be good for the Big 12. You know, for the Big 12, you need OU and Texas to both be good. You really do. Um, it brings in the money. It, it gets it popular, and you just you need them to be good. Um, they've We've seen this before. You know, they've gotten recruits in the past, and they just haven't panned out. So hopefully this is different. You know, this kid looks really good. He's the number one player in the country. We'll see. You know, we'll, we'll I guess, you know, they're all paper tigers until they get on campus, but – Let's go ahead and move to baseball. Okay. So we had, you know, kind of going off COVID again, these COVID times. We had two Indians players get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so Zach Plesak and uh, Mike Clevenger. So guys were supposed to stay in the hotel whenever to be quarantined when they're on the road. Those two guys went out of the hotel, and as of now, they are quarantined by themselves at home, not allowed to be with the team, and I believe that the players are going to get to decide, as long as ownership, what happens to them and if they come back. Which, it's just sad. You know, it's not a dumb situation, but it's just sad that, you know, you're just, hey, you just want to go by, say hello to a friend or whatever, and you can't do that in these times. And with MLB and everything going on, with restrictions on players and everything, I just, you got to weigh the risk versus the reward, and they didn't weigh that, and that's what happens. 
Mm-hmm. Where did they go? Did they go to their training site, or we don't know yet? No, I think they just went home, if you're asking where they went okay. to co-corn. Okay. So, another COVID situation is the Toronto Blue Jays in their playoff, or their not their playoff, their stadium situation. Canada mm-hmm. won't let them play. They won't let them bring teams in. Can you tell us more about that? What What's yeah. the situation there? So, basically, Toronto declined. The city of Toronto declined teams coming up to Toronto because they would have to quarantine, I believe, for 10 to 14 days before they could um, actually get to play. And so Toronto had to go both at, at home. They would play Buffalo now, but at the beginning of their home season, they were playing games um, in Washington, D.C., so they'd play the Nationals. They thought about going different places, PNC Park. It never worked out with the city of Pittsburgh. They talked about other things to go, but they finally settled on going to their AAA facility, which is in Buffalo. Um, but it's just hard on those guys and those players. Um, and that's been kind of more of a disappointment this year to me mm-hmm. with not having good pitching. But, you know, to be on the road the whole time and to not have a home ballpark is kind of tough. And, you know, you just kind of have to do the best you can. But they've been more disappointing team to me. Right. So what are some other disappointing teams in your opinion? Disappointing. Milwaukee. Is taking a step back. Chicago White Sox, to me, the White Sox um, are in fourth place in the division. Yeah, I mean, those were that, that was one of our surprises. Like, we were we picked them to be good this year. That was one of our, our, uh, mm-hmm. our up-and-coming teams, and they just didn't really do anything. What are some more? Let's see. Who else? It's kind of been – Atlanta has been disappointing, 11-10, and because they have Ronald Cunha, Albies. They, they lost their best pitcher, Sirocco, to an injury – season-ending injury, which that's hard to do. But they've been a disappointment, and there's just been teams that have not been great. The Astros have really not been great either, mm-hmm. so it's been interesting. So kind of, you know, you, you mentioned their best pitcher having an injury that ended their season. We've kind of seen that this year. You know, we had Verlander. We, don't, we still don't know if he's out for the year or not, but you've seen Kershaw get hurt. You've seen Kluber for the Rangers get hurt. The guy from the Braves get hurt. Severino get hurt. So what do you think is the problem here? Why are all these pitchers getting hurt? And honestly, a lot of players are getting hurt this year. What do you think has to do with that? I think it's because it's 60 games, first off. They're playing – they haven't played for so much time. Um, When you go, you get months off, you get cut off in March. During spring training, they're told to go home. And then you come back and you have a summer camp in July, you know, June, July, and then you're going straight – into playing every day, and those guys aren't, you know, used to playing every day when they've been off that much time. You're going to have injuries, and that's why you got to have a deep. You got to have a deep squad, and you got to have a deep sixty, not just thirty, um, with the taxi squad. And so, guys, you know, really you have Sugarland Skeeters that are playing independent ball, uh, having different guys come up and play games. We've had the Marlins go over and pick players up, and so it's been good. Yeah, um, you. Speaking of that, you know, the Astros just got Jordan Alvarez back. What do you think that does for a team like that? I think it does well for Jordan. Um, the Astros have been hitting really well. They need pitching, though. Their pitching hasn't been awesome yet. Um, but they, they, they're they right in it. They're 10-10. and 10. They have a chance to be. All you got to get is in that second spot in the division because Oakland, I believe, is going to win that division because they're good. But if they get in, you never know, and we'll go from there. So you know, you talked about they're right there, right you know on the cusp of being good. What do you think the trade deadline is going to look like for teams like that that need pitching during this COVID time during this short season? What do you how do you think that's going to work? 
I don't think there's going to be as many trades as what people believe, and I believe that will happen because of the COVID situation. I think teams want to evaluate what they have internally. You know, you may see certain teams that need a bullpen piece go after and go trade for a bullpen piece, or but I don't think you're going to see the big major trade to this trade deadline. Um, I think it's just it is what it is this year. You kind of re- evaluate what you have internally. And then you go into next year and you're like, okay, this is what I have. This is what we're going to go with. And this is what we're going to do to make ourselves better in 2021 and beyond. Right, right. And, you know, we've had a lot of new weird things happen in this season. You know, we have the extra rules. What is your opinion on this new extra inning rule? And how do you – do you think it will go to the regular season next year? And what is your view on this? Well, it started – in AAA and AA last year, I believe. And I liked it at AAA. You know, it makes you decide, are you going to bunt, play for one run, or are you going to play for multiple runs? Um, it's trying to make the game not go 18, 17, 18 innings anymore. But I, I don't know. We'll see if it goes in the next year. I like it. But what are your thoughts, Carter, on the – At first, I liked it because, you know, you it makes the game more exciting, right? You have a guy on second, you know, that adds more pressure, you're nervous, you know, it gets the blood pumping because you have zero outs and you have a guy on second, a base hit can win the game like that, right? But, you know, I watched the Astros-Dodgers at the beginning of the year, and that game still went 11, 12 innings, if, I, if I'm correct. And it really didn't do anything because teams weren't bunting. They weren't using it strategically. So I think at that point it doesn't really do anything, you know. it just. But it, it's interesting. I think – you know, maybe if they have a whole off season or, you know, a full season of it instead of just 60 games, we may see more strategy come into it. Uh, I don't know. I, I do like it, though, because it adds more it, – it makes the game more thrilling, if that makes sense. But let's switch gears um, on this right now. Let's go into hockey. So hockey has kind of the same setup as the NBA, right? What do you what, – what's going on in hockey? Um, hockey is basically they've been keeping in a bubble first off. Um, and they've been playing games and playing games. And so we'll pull it up in just a second um, with the conferences. Um, but hockey, you've got eight teams in the East. You've got eight teams in the West. And they've been playing games. And, you know, it's kind of more like a bubble like the NBA. But what are your main thoughts on, Carter, on the hockey and what's going on there? I think it's interesting because you have a bubble, but the bubble are in two cities. It's not like a resort property like Disney. So you're using two big arenas, and I think that's interesting. Kind of, It's kind of different from the NBA, but I think, you know, if Corona keeps acting up in the, in the, in the big leagues, you could see it. What, what do you think? No, and I'll bring off some uh, playoff standings right now for you. We fill, and start in the East. Philadelphia and Montreal, one versus eight. Series is tied one game to one. Tampa Bay, a two-seed. The Lightning facing the Columbus Blue Jackets are up two games to one. Washington, ooh, this is an upset. Washington Capitals are losing to New York Islanders, three versus six, zero games to three games. And Boston is up two games to one over Carolina. That's in the east. In the west, which Vegas is up over Chicago, three games to none. Colorado is up over Arizona, two games to one. Dallas is down one game to two to Calgary. And St. Louis is down to Vancouver, zero games to two. And so I don't really know a whole lot about those teams, but it's kind of interesting to see how you have a, 
a six seed upsetting a number three seed. And Washington Capitals have always been good with Alex Ovechkin. And, I mean, that's just surprising to me. Your thoughts, Carter? Yeah, so I don't really watch hockey. I usually watch hockey in the playoffs. Because playoff yeah. hockey is fun to watch. You know, they're slamming each other and everything. But I do know that, you know, that's a pretty big upset for the Islanders to be beating the Capitals. I think they won it a couple years ago, did they not? Mm-hmm. Um, so that should be interesting. I'll definitely be watching this year. Um, it's it's very strange not having fans in a playoff atmosphere, even in the NBA. Uh, I think it's gonna be definitely getting it's gonna it's gonna be tough time getting used to it. What are your thoughts on that? No, without fans right now, it's just it brings a different energy to the game. Mm-hmm. The fans like you fight all, and we'll get into this a little bit. You fight for home field advantage for a reason, not just because you're sleeping in your own bed and you're staying in your own apartment, but you're also because you have the fans support behind you. And so now you're, you fight this whole season, you know, before COVID started and you're a one seed or a two seed and then COVID starts and you're like, man, now I'm not even getting home playoff games. And there's just something missing without the fans in the arena, stadiums, you name it. Um, It's just, it's just weird and different, but your thoughts, Carter? Yeah, I mean, you know, Seattle, kind of going off the fans, Seattle just got an expansion team, the Kraken, which that's a cool name. Um, they got a new team, and so what does that do next year if they don't have fans? That, that kind of I don't know how that, you do well with yeah. marketing and, and merchandise and everything like that, and how do you promote yeah. your team and you sell tickets and you have all these different issues that most people that – just the casual fan don't really think about really, but you have a lot of different issues in sports. How do you get, you know, sponsorships, agreements, stuff like that. And so we'll see where it goes, but I don't know. What are your thoughts, Carter? It's tough for the fans because, you know, they, they were waiting on this for a long time, I'm sure. And they finally got, you know, they lost the Supersonics. And so that, you know, that kind of hurt, and they finally got a new sport, a new expansion team, and now they may not be able to go to the games. So that we'll see how that, how that kind of plays in. And I, I, I kind of liked it when Seattle did have a basketball team. It was, mm-hmm. I, I could believe – you could see Seattle getting another team maybe, maybe for, team for basketball, but we'll see where that goes. Who knows? That's far down the line for sure. Right. Well, we are so thankful for our special guest next – you want to introduce him, Jackson? Yeah, coming up, we'll have Jackie Moore on the show um, and Jonathan Moore to talk about pack sports, to talk about just Jackie's experiences in baseball with the Rangers organizations, with the Big Red Machine, and so we'll, with the Express, and we'll get into kind of a little bit of everything, but here we go. We'll start it right now. We're here with our special guest, Jackie Moore, and his son, Jonathan, who's joining the show in a little bit. But, Jackie, first off, thank you for joining the show. We appreciate it. Yes, hey, thank it's you. my pleasure. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. So our first question is, how is it different managing the big leagues versus the double-A? Well, obviously, you know, the uh, double-A level, I'll start there, that uh, a bunch of young players, their dream is to get to the big leagues. And uh, so it's a stepping stone, you know, as far as getting the double-A, you know, round rock. And if you're a double-A player and you can play your double-A, start your double-A career at round rock, Man, you're way ahead of the game because everything there was, you know, so special. And all the time that I was there, the support, the community coming together, you know, Dale Diamond. And I think I've been asked a lot of times in my career, you know, what is one of the most important things or what comes to your mind? And uh, it's not only, you know, the 
success as far as your career, but having the opportunity to call a young player in my office and tell them, you're going to the big leagues, you're going to the Astros, and get their reaction. And a lot of times it was, well, Skip, what do I do? And I said, well, first of all, you know, you just your dream just come true. Well, call your wife or, or your mom and dad or your girlfriend and tell them, you know, that uh, you're going to the show, which, you know, we called it, you know, the show back in those days. And I said, and the second thing you better do is you better be in Houston tomorrow at 3 o'clock or they're going to find your butt. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was such a pleasure. And the eight years that I spent in Round Rock at Dell Diamond, you could not have written a better script. I mean, it just fell in place and it, it was almost like it was meant to be. In some, some ways it was. Well, kind of having a, being a double-A manager and having a younger ball club, what are the challenges of having a younger ball club at double-A? Well, I think the biggest challenge, and, and I've told my sons the same thing that, and my coaching staff that, uh, you know, most of the time, it's the first time they're away from home, a lot of times, and you're kind of like their dad, on you know, away from home, and there's more to it than just playing a game of baseball. Obviously, they, you know, they have talent or they wouldn't be there, and you've got to kind of impress on them, you know, the, the rules of the business, you know, how you take care of yourself. And I guess the best way to put it is the first thing that I, you know, to talk to my coaches about or whatever, let's make men out of them, and then we'll make professional baseball players. They were already professional baseball players, but we will enhance their, you know, uh, chances of getting to the big league, fulfill their dream. So kind of going off of that, how was it, how hard was it to manage players that didn't speak English? What were some of the challenges that came with that? Well, it was a challenge, and of course, you know, that uh, in most cases we had some players that did, you know, bilingual, that did speak English. And uh, trust me, there's some of them that speak a lot more English than they'll, you know, own up to, you know, especially when around payday and so forth. But uh, no, I'm just getting there. But uh, <laughs> it, it was never really, you know, a lack of communication, you know, because the game of baseball explains itself. You'd be at the ballpark at a certain time, you know, you'd be dressed and be on the field. And remember, you know, there's a curfew. you representing not only the Houston Astros, but you're representing, you know, the Round Rock Express. And so better make sure that uh, most of it is possible. Okay, kind of going off of that and all your experiences in baseball, what was it like to be the bench coach of the Big Red Machine with the well, Reds? It, uh, needless to say, you know, I'd spent a lot of time before then. And uh, I was in Montreal, and Lou Pinella was named the manager, of course. and. Then I had the opportunity, you know, I called and wanted me to be his bench coach. And so that was 1990 was the first year Lou coming to the American League and not really, you know, dealing with the double switch things that uh, you do in the American League that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, I mean, excuse me, that things you do in the National League that you didn't have to do in the American League. You put a lineup out there and turn them loose. Of course, the uh, National League, when you have that pitcher hitting, you better make sure you keep him as far away from home play as possible. But it was awesome. You know, the first year, 1990, uh, we led the National League from day one. We get into the playoffs, and, and we win the playoffs. Then we get into the National League Championship. We get there, and now we go to the World Series. And to me, it was probably one of the most uh, standout upsets in professional sports because everyone thought Oakland was going to sweep us. You know, the... Uh, the Bash brothers and you know their record and what and and to be honest with you 
we knew how good they were, but we didn't quite understand how good we were. And to end up sweeping sweeping them in the World Series, I mean, that's uh, that's one of the major uh, upsets in sports in my in in my uh, mind. How was it being the first Round Rock Express manager? Well, it it turned out great. You know, it turned out that I wanted to finish my career there, and and. I guess in some ways I was too proud of myself that all the years I spent in, you know, at the major league level, flying around on jets and uh, living in the Rich Carlton, and now you know that uh, people are asking me to go manage that Double A club, you know, all the bus rides all over Texas and you know the minor leagues. And to be honest with you, I I had a little you know uh, different thoughts about it, and then I kept watching the situation you know, in Round Rock, and, and I knew who was behind it, the Ryan family, the Sanders family, and my mindset was, well, I'll go do it one year, you know, as a favor, and and that one year turned into eight years, and that was eight of the best years that I ever spent, you know, dealing with the young players and, and the, the association with the, you know, Astros at that time, and so my mindset was that I, that's the way I was going to finish my career there in Round Rock, and the Astros called and wanted me to come to the big leagues being uh, Cecil Cooper's bench coach. Well, how special was that first year managing with the Round Rock Express, and what was it like to win a championship there? Well, it here again, it's almost like the script was written for us. It, uh, everything was new, and I can recall that a lot of people that still, you know, lived in Round Rock a little bit before you guys' time, but, you know, you, you would turn on 79 going east, and you better have gas in your tank because it wasn't a whole lot there, you know, as far as, you know, the uh, the way it's built up now. And to watch the uh, – it's amazing how baseball opens a lot of doors, you know, and the old saying, build it and they'll come. Well, that's Round Rocket, uh, the Express, is a perfect example of it. Did you ever win our championship after that 2000 season? Well, yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, I go to the Astros mm-hmm. and your grandfather, Nolan, you know, he called and wanted to know if I, you know, wanted to, you know, come back to Arlington with the Rangers. And of course, I lived uh, in Arlington. Jonathan and Spencer and the kids, you know, went to school here. You know, graduated, you know, from the public schools. And sure, you want a chance to, uh, you know, come back, you know, to your home, and especially with the Rangers, and especially with Nolan. And as it turned out, I don't know how it could have worked out better. You know, when Nolan was here, you know, one of the owners, uh, president, and success we had. That through you know Ron Washington, the coaches, and I think four years in a row we went over 90 games. We go to the playoffs, you know, two World Series. Unfortunately, you know, we didn't win one of them. But uh, you asked me one of my biggest thrills, one of my biggest disappointment is that Game Six, and you know, the uh, against St. Louis, you know, in the World Series. That I relive that a lot, and that's almost impossible for that to happen. You go back to spring training, you spend all your time in spring training. All right, you go through the season, you go to the playoffs, you go to the World Series, and now twice you're one pitch away from being the world's champions. You know, just some Freeze could have hit a line drive at someone, he could have hit, popped it up, strike out, whatever, you know. And for that to happen twice, it just, uh, it's almost impossible in my mind. How was growing up in Houston, and who was your idol growing up? Well, of course, growing up in Houston, that's where all my career started. And, uh, I was fortunate enough in 1957, which is a long time for you guys, you know, uh, I signed with the Tigers out of Bel Air High School in Houston, out of high school with the uh, Tigers. And uh, it started my career, you know, that, uh, of course, back in those days, like a lot of young players, you know, that 
two or three years in the minor leagues, and I was going to be the next next uh, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, you know, just uh, put me out there and everything was going to fall in place. But it didn't happen that way. Of course, I go to D-ball and then uh, A-ball, double-A, triple-A, and finally got my, you know, my chance, you know, at the major leagues with the Tigers in 1965. So, but, you know, it's the opportunity to play, and that's what kind of bothers me nowadays that the uh, – commissioner and you know baseball's mindset is take away a lot of minor league clubs and that's uh totally against my mindset because that had to happen back in my day or what you know I wouldn't have had the chance to spend 11 years playing and then end up with uh 37 years at the big league level and uh three world series you know and so I it really bothers me to see them take everything out of baseball and not put things back into it um who was your idol growing up I would have to say Mantle you know, I think he he was one of uh, quite a few young players, you know, idle. And uh, so, of course, back in my day in Houston, you know, we didn't have, you know, the Astros. Uh, it was a double-A club of uh, St. Louis. And so most of our, you know, experience baseball was radio. And, and uh, so anyway, it was, bottom line, I was very fortunate. Well, after your playing career was over, how did you make the transition from player to coach and what motivated you to become a coach? Well, I realized that, of course, growing up, I always wanted to be a you know baseball player. And then I, after playing so many years in the minor leagues, up and down, and, and uh, I wanted to stay in the game of baseball. And, and fortunate enough that uh, I was traded from Detroit to Boston. And Detroit had offered me a job. They said, once, once you're playing careers over, you know, we'll have a spot for you, you know, if you have an interest. I go to Boston and they have the same mindset. So anyway, it, uh, after my career was over, I had the opportunity, you know, to start managing Rover, you know, the Red Sox uh, organization. So it all started from there. All right. Our next one for you is uh, Jackie. Why did you have a young me make out the lineup card and tell us a story about me making the lineup card and who I had in the lineup? Well, it, uh, it, this is really, it's a cute story, but it's a real story. And uh, Joanne, my wife, and Jonathan's mother, she ran across this, the old desk, the antique desk that, you know, you sit in and got the little, you know, writing pad out on it. And so she brought it to the clubhouse. And uh, Reed, uh, Jackson's dad, would come down before the game, and you were four or five years old. So I'd be making out the lineup card, and then I would give – Jackson a lineup card and when he first started out you know, he was just scribbled on the uh, lineup card and we got in the habit of doing this and now he got older and I was there longer or whatever and when I really realized that his career in baseball was going to start outstanding was it I had a young player there Jason Lane that was Mr. Everything and you know he led the league in home runs you know batting average I mean he was you know one of the top prospects and so I don't recall what age it was, but Jackson was at the age. All at once I gave him a lineup card, leading off, Jason Lane. Hitting second, number two, Jason Lane. Hitting third, number three, Jason Lane. So <laughs> he was, you know, pretty smart uh, uh, manager at a young age. What is your favorite memory with Ron Washington and Mike Maddox? Well, I was fortunate enough to be with a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, uh, managers, which they all contributed to my success. Learn something from all of them. Uh, I'll stay with Wash for a while. Coming over, you know, from the Astros to, to the Rangers, and 
a lot of people said, well, you know, that uh, I was coming over to take his job. Well, that was totally, you know, not, not the mindset. Uh, I really didn't want to manage anymore. Uh, I had had my shot at it. I was getting up in age. And it didn't take long for me and Wash to realize, you know, the relationship, you know, that uh, we formed. And I think a lot of my recognition was that not only we won a whole bunch of ball games and, you know, go in the World Series or whatever, but the hug after the game, after the win that Wash and I, you know, went through, and that really stuck out in a, in a lot of people's mind. And uh, so I, I wish right now, under circumstance, they would show that a little more often now, you know. And, uh, but it was, it was special, and I really enjoyed it. And as far as Maddox, I watched him retire. You know, I didn't really know him that well. I knew of him, of course, his brother, you know, Hall of Famer. And now he comes to Round Rock. First year is a pitching coach. And it didn't take long to realize that he was special also. And from Round Rock, you know, that uh, he goes to Milwaukee. Uh, on the sidelines, uh, Nolan and I found a way to get him back, you know, here with the Rangers. And his career speaks for itself. You know, an outstanding job, in my opinion, if not the best, one of the best in baseball. Lives here in South Lake. Uh, we still have a, you know, close relationship. We still go to Nolan's and hunt a lot, you know, fish a lot, and just uh, really enjoy each other. And so the biggest problem is that now, you know, Wash is with Atlanta, and of course, you know, uh, uh, Maddox is St. Louis, and when they play each other, you know, I, I've got to make a decision, who do I want to win a ball game, you know, here. So I pull for both of them in one game, second game, and I turn them loose on the third game and let them settle it. But uh, I wish them nothing but the best. and. I found out a long time ago in this business, uh, you know, they can take a lot of things away from you, but they cannot take your friendship. No, for sure. Well, tell us a little bit about the 2011 Texas Rangers and how painful it was to be, you know, one strike away twice from winning the championship and bringing the first championship to Arlington, Texas. Well, here again, you know, it, it, it comes down that, as I explained a little bit before, that, you know, you go through, you go through spring training, the season, the playoffs, and, you know, a lot of things that have to happen good for you. You have to get a little break here. Then, of course, you make your own breaks and win a lot of ball games that uh, you know that uh, it's hard to do. And then here again, you you come down again that uh, it was almost like it wasn't supposed to happen. And one of the biggest things that's not spoken about a whole lot was that uh, it was that rain out that it never rained in St. Louis that really came into play. That uh, all at once, but them not playing that one day. If it goes to Game Seven, which it did. Well, that kind of, you know, to, to pitch against us, their best pitcher. But, uh, but for the, without making any kind of excuses or what, to be in that situation twice, where, you know, that uh, here again, a swing and miss, a ground ball at the right place, a pop up, a, a wall is caught, you know, a ball caught, you know, in the outfield, you know, just uh, on and on and on. For that to happen twice, you know, it's, uh, it's almost impossible. Can you tell us a little bit about Pack Sports? Like, what? How did y'all come up with it? What What made y'all want to do it? And just tell, give us a little information about it. Well, it really, you know, Jonathan. Uh, he played it in the Ranger organization. Has a love of you know baseball, the same as I do, and wanted to stay in baseball. You know, at the uh, amateur level, as far as youth baseball, and so we got to thinking about you know that uh, the situation that let's put together you know Pack Sports youth baseball. And let's just uh, give these young players to do a little something different and make sure that uh, 
when they play the game of baseball, you know, that uh, they have fun doing it. Don't wear them out. And I'm going to kind of let Jonathan speak a little bit on this as far as, you know, pack sports and, and what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's definitely a good opening for it. Um, so one of our biggest missions, and as uh, Jackie was saying through um, this interview, is that he, he has a passion for um, – baseball especially at a lower level um with his all of his years the minor league level the player development side of it um there's just a strong passion there for him as well as the rest of us that are involved in uh what we're doing pack um so i've been coaching select baseball for the past six years um i've noticed that there's a lot of um um it's kind of a broken system right now as far as um how many games are being played on a weekend, things of that nature. Uh, the instant gratification that kids get when they win a weekend tournament, um, it, when in reality, a baseball season is about longevity. Um, it's not a show up for one weekend, win the tournament, and we're the best team out there. It's how long can you withstand a season, uh, be able to go through a slump, bounce back, get out of it quickly. Um, so we're looking to change some things in the youth side of it um, as far as um, instead of having the instant gratification side of things, we want to develop more of season type atmospheres where kids are having to uh, compete for um, the longevity. They have to go through the slumps. They have to see where they're at within the standings. Um, so we have a lot of cool things that are, are going to be implemented in the 2021 season for us. Um, obviously, we would have liked to have implemented those this year, but with everything going on with, uh, with the pandemic and all that, it was just... Um, uh, an unfortunate situation, but another strong, a strong uh, need, I believe, in my opinion, and um, something that I was blessed enough to have as a youth ball player growing up is that having the access to professional coaches and being around professional baseball players, that was something that was um, just common to me. Um, so one thing that I really want to try to implement in this pack system is that we want to close the gap between the youth ball player and the professional ball player. Um, we want to give these kids access to be able to reach out to these guys, uh, to have a lot of former uh, players come out and coach an event for them, coach a game for them here and there. Um, but we're also going to be implementing a player development system um, on our website that gives kids access to be able to reach out to um, coaches, professional coaches, professional players. So um, there's just uh, there's a need for a change in youth baseball, and we recognized it. Um, and so we're going to do our best to um, help close that gap um, as far as making some changes on the on the playing side of it, but also making some changes where um, we give kids access to the best coaches the best player development people possible just because in our day and age there's so much on instagram there's so you just don't know there's so much on twitter like i just don't know if i was coming through a system at this age like i wouldn't know who to trust um and so it definitely uh we definitely want to be that one-stop shop platform where uh kids can trust us um they know that we're gonna we have their best interest at heart um so yeah it's uh there's gonna be a lot more coming out in the 2021 season uh, this year, we're just trying to get through the, the whole COVID situation. So, but yeah, that's, that's pack in a nutshell. Uh, how was it growing up, you know, having your dad in Major League Baseball and in Round Rock, how was it growing up with that in baseball? And also, how did 
playing minor league baseball and being in an organization help you coach? Um, so when I was younger, I would say pre-high school and into high school, I didn't quite understand the situation. Uh, I was a little bit naive to it. Uh, and I can say this because my dad didn't know anything about baseball in my mind. Like he would try to coach me and it would be like, nah, I'm not gonna listen. It would, it would take someone else to have to say something the exact same way he said it for me to buy in. Uh, so when I was younger, it was, uh, I would say I was probably a little stubborn, I guess is the best way to, to put it, but I just didn't recognize the situation because I didn't see him as a professional coach. I saw him as dad. Um, but I was fortunate to be able to go to the ballpark and you know see these professional athletes on a daily basis. Uh, so that part was very motivating. Um, and growing up, as I started getting older, um, junior, senior, and high school, that's when I really started recognizing uh, the magnitude of it and the situation that I was blessed to be in. Um, and that's right around uh, Round Rock time as well. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Round Rock a lot of those years, hang out with those guys. Um, but the, the biggest thing from growing up in that atmosphere um, is in my mind, I always felt that I had a chance to go play at the professional level just because I had someone that close to me that was living and breathing that. So it wasn't something that I felt was out of the realm. Um, it was a, <clears throat> yeah, I had that dream. Everyone has that dream of going to play at a professional level. Uh, but for me, it was always like, okay, that's just the next step. Um, where I know like a lot of parents are always, you know, telling their kids, you know, make sure you have that plan B, make sure, you know, not everyone's gonna make it to that level, which is great. Um, but I've always kind of been, I've always kind of been the guy that really gets fascinated when someone goes all in. Uh, when you're flipping through the channel and you happen to come across the, a poker game and you see that dude push all the chips in, like that's when you really get someone's attention. Um, so for me, I've always been all in, um, just because I knew it was realistic, because I had someone that close to me that was living and breathing that. Um, so it was, at the younger ages, I was a little naive to it, but as I started getting older, I, w I realized um, how fortunate I was, and then I got surrounded with the best coaches around. Um, had Rudy Harmelo as a hitting coach one year, Clint Hurdle as a hitting coach. Um, I had guys that were so willing to um, give me advice um, that it, it, it really helped um, me get to the next level of my career. Um, had a chance in the Rangers organization, um, gave it the best I had, um, but it's, it was kind of at that point when you really start feeling a little bit more pressure because people start kind of putting a, a label on you a little bit more, like, oh, that's Jackie Moore's son. Like, that's what you really start hearing a lot more. Um, so, needless to say, like, you start feeling the pressure a little bit more through your older years, uh, but it was, uh, I was so fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to be around these guys. Um, it really taught me a lot as far as work ethic um, and wouldn't change it for the world. How has that helped you coach select ball or just youth baseball in general? Um, so I've gotten so much material from these guys and it's really just kind of, it's built my arsenal where I, I feel like I, you never have an answer for everything. 
but the education that I've been given from these experts in their field has really prepared me for the youth level. Um, and for me personally, the, the education that I got in baseball is so advanced that when I was coaching at the 9, 10, 11 U level, it was tough to bounce, to, to try to, um, to uh, teach at that level. But then I just got to a point to where I had to make a decision. I'm gonna teach at the high level that I know that I can get these kids to get to. Um, so instead of trying to dumb it down a whole lot, uh, I just started teaching these kids at the advanced level and just kept trying to engrave that into them. And sure enough, they catch on. Um, so the biggest thing for me at the youth, youth level is challenge them, challenge the kids. Um, they, they'll adapt. Uh, it's, it's, it's a whole lot easier for them to adapt to the philosophies that you know uh, than trying to change something up and them get confused. Now you're confusing yourself because you're not used to teaching it that way. Um, so the best thing that I, that I learned at the youth level is whatever you've learned in the, the college, the professional realm, um, teach it that way and the kids will adapt. But, um, but yeah, I've just been so fortunate with the coaches that I've been surrounded with. Um, whenever, so I was, when I started coaching the youth level, uh, my dad was still coaching uh, with the Rangers. So I got all sorts of, I got to borrow all their material as far as um, stuff they'd give out to their minor league guys, uh, drills, spring training plans, things like that. So I was definitely fortunate uh, to have uh, that material on my side. So I, I was never reinventing the wheel, that's for sure. Well, thank you, Jackie, and thank you, Jonathan, for your yes, time. And it's you always so great to catch up with you all. Absolutely. Well, it's been fun, and uh, hey, we're just getting started. Let's do it again. Yes, let's absolutely do for it sure. again. For sure, for sure. Thank you all for listening to the show this week. We have a very special guest next week. Jackson, would you love to introduce him? Yeah, we'll have Gene Watson, the Senior Director of Pro Scouting and Assistant to the General Manager for the Kansas City Royals, join us next week. So looking forward to having Gene Watson on the show next week. It's going to be a good time. See y'all there.